This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain Our Software. Today, we have Eric Berry. Hey there. And me, Richard Litauer, and a fantastic guest, Bastion Gavi. Hi, nice meeting you. Have you been thinking about building a mobile application? but you're a web developer and you're not really sure you want to learn Swift or Objective-C or Kotlin or Java or any of the languages that are used natively by those platforms, well, you should check out React Native. React Native is a platform managed by Facebook. You can share a lot of your state management and other logic code between your applications. And we have a podcast that talks about all of the issues and all of the advantages of using React Native. And you can check that out at reactnativeradio.com. Bastien, you're calling in today from Paris, correct? Yes, Paris, France, Friday. Awesome. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about what you do there and what's going on in your life? So what's going on in my life? I suppose I'm here because I used to be the maintainer of OrgMod, which is a Nemax, a GNU Emacs module that is uh, quite famous. And I say I used to be because I'm not uh, active as a maintainer now. I'm just uh, the release manager. And Nicolas Goaziu is the new de facto uh, maintainer. And so my experience as a maintainer was from 2011 until 2015. And from that experience, which was great, and I'm still very happy about what we did, I've been very into the topics of, about how to maintain maintainers, how to sustain the efforts of the free software community, how we go beyond just lobbying users, uh, governments, and so on, and how we tackle the very hot topic of the economics of all this. So, and now I'm employed by the French administration as someone who helps public agencies to use more free software and to produce more free software. The main pain point being that as any public agency, we have a, a lot of difficulties to hire the right people and even more the right open source contributors. So this is my main focus right now. That's amazing. I've never used org mode and I've always felt like less of a person for not having used it. <laughs> You're um, not. <laughs> I just, I entered the world with Vim and that was a mistake, but it's how it is. It's That's fine. A, oh man. <laughs> when you say you work for the, the French government, is that for ETA lab? Well, there is this uh, administration called uh, the DINZIC, which is kind of a um, public agency who helps other ministries to do anything about IT stuff. So not just uh, develop software, but also all the network infrastructures for the, the, the public agencies. So um, I entered this administration being part of a program called Entrepreneur d'Intérêt Général, like Public Interest Entrepreneurs. And this was inspired by a Presidential Innovation Fellows program from the U.S. a few years ago. And the, the, the Presidential Innovation Fellows program was itself inspired by the healthcare trauma, like big project, big IT project in the administration, yep. cost a lot, and they are like nightmares. So every country has been learning from all this failures and France has some uh, failures too in the past. And there is this innovation program where we try to hire the right people working in small uh, agile team to fix, you know, precise uh, problems. 
So from there, I was really the open source guy in the uh, Innovation Fellows uh, promotion. And then I convinced the administration to hire me as a free software officer. That's amazing. First, as an American, I'm really glad that the world can learn from our failures, particularly in this case. Um, we have the same failure. <laughs> it's very hard for governments to get to get tech right. Uh, the healthcare thing here, I think it was 2013 or so, was just mm-hmm. monumentally messed up. I heard that the team of presidential fellows were described as parachute coders who would just parachute into a problem but then laptop away and the fires would all go out. Um, yeah. So that, that's really cool that France also has something. Thank you for explaining that. Dinsic is a direction numérique de l'état or something? Well, even French guys don't know the full name. So okay, okay. This is, this is what whatever you said. It's like direction, yeah. anything about digital in the public sector. Okay, I'll try, not, I'll try not to speak French from here on out because clearly my accent's really bad. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Thank you. That's, that's amazing. So how did you get involved with org mode? Well, I'm not a developer. I, I grew up as a, you know, a philosopher, uh, studying philosophy, and I enjoyed it very much. And around 2000, uh, no, yeah, 2000, there was this big hot topic in philosophy of science about patent on uh, medicines and generic medicines and all that stuff and how the economics of this was uh, important for the, you know, the decades to come. And I learned about patenting software uh, because there was this huge debate in Europe whether you use uh, software patents or not. I started to study this and I was a bit of a geek and I, I used to try various Linux distributions. So one day I had uh, Emacs uh, on my computer. I had no internet. I got the internet thanks to some guy I met in the metro in the tube who gave me the line to <laughs> recompile my kernel. And I'm definitely grateful to this guy. And when I had both Emacs and the internet, I just spent hours uh, amazed that everything was here and that the main message was, this is for you. You can hack it. You can adapt it to your needs. You can do whatever you want. Before that, I was just uh, stealing software. I, actually, I was uh, spending a few years you know, trying to find my ways in, in software that I wanted to use. And I was, you know, feeling very uh, uh, special by, you know, stealing software online you know, piracy. Yeah. I guess many people have done that and I won't go to prison. Uh, but <laughs> it was a shock, like, to discover the main message on Emacs saying, this is free software and we give it to you. So I felt the need to give back, as many people did, I guess. This is still important to me, this kind of ethical relation to the software, because nowadays I have this feeling that I have this discussion with many friends saying, well, open source is just about money now. So it's not about ethics. It's just about, you know, you use it, you even give it back. You're just the useful idiots of capitalism, to say Mm. in a very short sentence. And... I feel hurt when I hear this because open source and free software has been made by a lot of people giving their free time to fix things on the internet and fix software to adapt it and sharing a single line of code 
is always for me a ethical uh, act. So I went from philosophy and debates and and thinking about about where the world goes for the next uh, century to thinking, okay, software is going to be everywhere and it has to be free. And Richard Stallman has a point. And to using Emacs more and more for anything about you know writing from writing nothing but just text and and PA. So my first software was actually for my girlfriend so that she could write her thesis more easily, uh, <laughs> not using Microsoft Word, but using plain text and exporting to LaTeX. From that, we uh, we got separated. And I guess maybe, maybe many developers will have the same story. And this, the day I was not with her, I spent all my days with Emacs and Emacs is my longest relationship so far. And I'm happy with that. And, and she's fine, by the way. She hasn't let you down, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I hear she's complicated, though. No, she's not. She's a great person. And, and, but she's still happy that, that I taught her what was plain text. She's a linguist, actually. So she oh, I thought, we were, I thought we were... <laughs> Eric was talking about Emacs. I was talking about Emacs. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, she, she's great. She's going to be here for for a long time, and and uh, uh, yeah. okay, <laughs> Bastion, We actually have a very similar path to coding. I was a linguist. I started coding by building LaTeX formatters, uh, BSD okay. files for, and then I ended up realizing this was really fun, and then doing coding with Python for my thesis, and now here I am. You said earlier, so you're not a developer. I'm not a developer, but you also maintain a massive project, and you just use the phrase "recompile my kernel." So I'm curious. How do you justify not being a developer? Okay, I'm a social guy. So recompiling was just blindly trusting this random Uber geek in the metro who gave me this line of mod probe, whatever. I'm not afraid of breaking things. So I break a lot of things. I'm good at breaking things. And I'm sometimes good at fixing some of them. But it's important to me that I'm not a developer. I mean, now, of course, I, I continue to develop things that I've been learning for the last 20 years because it has always been a hobby. And I think if we, and we're going to discuss this uh, later on about maintenance and uh, the economics of all this, but I think we should always have this door open to uh, hobbyists, which was the very point of Richard Sunman when he started to the, the, the free software movement saying, okay, the community is dying. We have to start again the community and hobbyist will be my first help in, in building this. So, And also maintaining this big project. I was the average developer in the project. I learned so much from others. You know, Ogmod uh, connects with other languages. Yep. So people writing the, the Python code to the, the uh, Emacs code so that Ogmod can, you know, execute Python code. So it means that we have Python experts helping me understand how this Emacs code should should work. And same for Clojure and same for uh, even Java and other languages that I, that I don't know. So Emacs is really fantastic because it's an entry point for all the uh, computer science culture around here. And other people are way better than me. I was good at you know, dealing with uh, social relations on a mailing list in a peaceful way. Yep. And that's what is expected from maintainers. And I was good at ignoring my financial crisis and spending three hours 
uh, every day on, on this uh, because it was really a passion for me. That's fantastic. I really appreciate the, the spirit of humility that you have because I think that's really important as a maintainer to be like, I'm just trying here to figure out what I can do. I'm not the most important person in the project. It's just... Well, first of all, uh, Karsten Dominic is the first developer of Orkmut, so he spent years on developing it uh, mm. to the way it was when he gave the maintenance to me in, in 2011. And Karsten is a fantastic developer. Like He has really great ID. He's a, he has a, a coding velocity that, that no one can really match. And so I was forced to be very humble when he asked me. And also, this humility is not just um, a personal feeling. It's also something that you need to make sure that people feel they have value they could bring to the yep. project. Yep. It's not about, you know. So that's why the, 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 the flow has been always very low. The contribution flow has been very as low as possible. So if you have to fix a typo, okay, great. And I will explain to you how to rewrite your patch. You're going to do it because you want to learn. This is a learning process. But I will just take the time to teach this to you. So this, this learning and teaching relation has been also very important for me. I've been learning uh, how to code like this. And this is something I wanted to give back as the spirit of the mailing list has been very focused on being, not just being nice, but being useful to others. Yeah, I, I hear you say that you want to give back. I've been on one of your blogs, bcg.fr, and you say that you donate to free software and free culture and you list how much you donate. Um, yeah. Which is, I think that's fantastic. So donate to free culture and free software, put a link in there. Yeah, you can I, see I don't give that much. Yeah, so what I wanted to ask, actually, because you mentioned earlier about ethics and capitalism. Yeah. Um, since you're a philosopher, and so you, you thought about this deeper than I have, how do you balance market forces against personal ethics? I mean, don't you feel that your personal ethics are dependent on your position, on your being able to, say, take three hours to work on something and not have to work during those three hours? I'm not sure. I, I completely understood the question. Okay, sorry. So what's wrong when your friends say that you're just being used by, by capitalism and open source is all about money? Where, where do they get it wrong? Because it seems to me that you, you have this immense privilege. And so you're able to put in this work and you're able to ignore your finances for a while. Yeah. I think they are wrong empirically in the sense that some people continue to do this as a patient just because they want to share their software and just because they think it's important and no matter the money attached to it. Some people just do it for the thrill of... Uh, you know, new technology, innovation, learning new things, and and that's okay. And I've always been an advocate of um, sustainability and, you know, even through finance and solid uh, stakeholders taking part of the open source economy. Because I think the more stakeholders and the more companies you have supporting free software, then the more free software developers getting paid uh, you have. But... I continue to think the door, as I said before, the door should be open for hobbyists mm. and people who just don't have any financial interest uh, in this. Where they have a point is that, as I often said, it's not because we have business models for open source that those business models are the right ones. We have many open source companies around here, and but... We don't have that much money going to the 
editors, to the one who create the software. We have a lot of money going to the one who installed the software, adapted for other companies. And um, in France, we call this uh, integra- in, integrator, like integrators. Of integrators, yeah. Yeah, integrators. Yeah. And I wish more money would go uh, to the people writing the software and to the and to the companies taking the risk of uh, building new solutions, so that we wouldn't have uh, things like uh, Redis Labs forced to use another license for their some use of their software, or even MongoDB uh, not being enticed to use a server-side license to prevent uh, other uh, usage of their. Uh, software, they could continue to be as free as they want without the threat of bigger companies uh, threatening their own models. How do you see that playing out? Because I, I see that as well, where where a lot of the uh, the projects that generate funding do tend to be those that are a bit higher profile, uh, and it doesn't allow for those funds to necessarily bleed down into the dependencies. John Schlinkert, one of our panelists who isn't on here today, has mm. he maintains over a thousand open source repos, some of which get thirty million downloads a day, and yet he's not getting much funding at all for those. So, how do you see that happening? Well, some of the efforts in the last years have been about uh, bringing more transparency about libraries' dependencies. I'm thinking about libraries.io um, initiative. Also, the backyourstack.com initiative by Open Collective and, and, and stuff like that. And some recent analysis were made on this. And that was really interesting because you could see that the donation model sometimes work for very well-known projects like uh, Vue.js and other projects. But there is this paradox, uh, this paradox on that very low-level infrastructure project that all the other modules depend on are not supported enough. And the more deeper they are in the layers of dependencies, sometimes the less attention they have from other people. So this brings the question, I think for now, donation is really dependent on um, fame like uh, and the courage to ask for money. Like if you identify that you're going to like fund or that you want to leave your entire day on, on, on donations and continue to code for free software. And then you go online and say, I want to do this. And yet, if your fame moves enough as a maintainer or as a contributor, then you can get the funding. But what about all this deeper layer where, uh, as you mentioned, like lots of uh, software. So I think one first step would, would be to identify in those deeper layer whether funding is needed or not. And to just ask the developers and the companies who develop these this layers to go out and say, yeah, we, we need money to continue to maintain this. And um, which is not sure for all the software. Some software, maybe they are just done and they continue to be used outside by, by many people. And we don't need that much funding except for you know, the everyday routine of fixing important bugs and stuff like that. But for, you know, deep projects that are a lot of uh, efforts going on, yeah, we need to bring more than just transparency. So to summarize, uh, I think uh, Backyourstack is going the right direction into giving an overview about what project is funded 
or not, but we also have kind of an architecture view about where is it in the chain of dependency and very deep in this chain, how can we help a strategy project? But I don't have any magic wand uh, to bring that. I, I agree with you completely. And you, you have an event coming up that you're, I believe, co-organizing, right? That focuses on these issues. You mean Fund the Code? Well, there's, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear more about Fund the Code. I'd love to hear about the maintainers yeah. uh, conference coming up. Oh, maintainers conference, yes. So the website for this is themaintainers.org. This is a group of uh, scholars, uh, sociologists, uh, software developers, anyone who wants to have, you know, the focus placed on maintenance in general, not just for software. It's also beyond software. Like when you speak about the economy of, of, of the commons, for example, and when you read Elino Ostrom, this is really not about software. This is about maintenance of uh, ecological goods and community taking care of, of stuff. Also, so this group is really focused on various topics and software is one of them. And I encourage uh, people to subscribe to the mailing list and to, do, to go to the conference, which is going to be, I, I won't be there uh, sadly, but the conference is going to be um, in, um, we can check on the website later. And I think it's in Washington, D.C. between October 6th and 9th. Yeah, Exactly. So Mehdi Mejawi um, will be the chair for the software track. And I expect a lot from this, from this track. So there is an open source software maintenance topic, which is really hot right now in, on Twitter and everywhere. And this topic takes place in another bigger sociological topic about who takes care of things in your everyday life and uh, who gets paid. Uh, about this, like think about mothers everywhere in the world. <laughs> Most of them don't get paid for what they do. And what they do is really uh, routine daily maintenance about homes, about education, children and everything. So how do you recognize this very hot topic of uh, taking care in any domain? So there's going to be a specific track about software. And it will be very important to maybe gather around a few specific topics that I don't know yet, but also to place and to step back and, and place this in perspective with other topics. It's fantastic. I love the analogy that you made with mothers. Um, that, that resonates really well with me. My, my wife is helping raise three children, and those three kids are kind of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> and uh, and I, I finish work, and I work in my basement, so I always hear like the yelling and screaming going on if there is. <laughs> but I go upstairs after work is over, and I compare my day to her day and the amount of mental stress that I've gone through versus the amount of mental stress that she's gone through. And every single day, I'm like, okay, where can I pick up? Because you need a break. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just mothers. It's also women in general and the fact that they are underpaid in every country, which is like uh, so sad and so universal. And I think uh, maintenance, bringing uh, the light on the maintenance topic is part of the efforts that we need to make to recognize works that we don't take for work right now or that, 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 they are, that are out of uh, the classical vision of the economy and part of an ongoing global efforts to, yeah, to speak more about infrastructures and long-term vision about uh, maintenance. I remember that this infrastructure 
topic was brought on the US TV, but there was a very funny, was it on, on the Saturday night show? There was a... Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So there was this, um, how do you call this? When you announce a movie, it was a fake one, but and the movie was called Infrastructure. If you've not seen it, it's so funny. And it's all about the fact that infrastructure is never sexy, right? If you try to make a hero movie about infrastructure, it's not going to be funny. It's going to be so boring that everyone's, everyone wants to escape. But I think, um, and it resonates a lot with my experience as a maintainer, 90% of my time went into fixing boring stuff, not doing very exciting new features or whatever. That's also why uh, it was okay to have an average uh, developer uh, on board. Have you thought about building iOS apps? We have a podcast that talks about the iOS development community, Swift, and all of the things that are involved in that. You can go find it at ifreakshow.com. That's I-P-H-R-E-A-K-S show.com. So you mentioned that you convinced the administration to give you a role. How, how did you do that? I'm curious. Well, there is this law in France about public information, which was targeting open data first. So the law is from 2016 and says basically that as a public agency, if you produce data, you have to open it and use an open data license to share it with the world. Within this law, there was um, a few lines about source uh, code saying that source code is also public information, meaning that as an administration, if you produce source code, you have to share it with the world the same way you have to share the open data. So everyone was happy with this line in the free software community, but I was wondering, okay, who's, sorry, who's in charge with explaining administration what are free software licenses? What, what is free software? What are free software licenses? What are the licenses that are allowed to use? In what condition can they publish their own source code? Is a zip file okay as a mean of publication? Should they go on GitHub, GitLab, or should they host their own, you know, Gitea uh, instance or whatever? So, and I found out that there was a lot of uh, familiarity with this question among a lot of people where I worked, but no one was in charge. And in the administration, if no one is in charge, then you have no one to blame. And, and that's a way of, yeah. So I wanted to be this guy who can take the heat. Uh, also by the uh, free software people who say, well, administration is not doing enough for free software. Who's the guy in charge and who should we uh, shoot next? so that he does the job of, of not buying Google stuff, Microsoft stuff, and so on. So the topic of buying software, proprietary software on, on the machines of public uh, of civil servants is very hard because there is a lot of money involved and people get really angry when they see this. But for me, this is not the main topic. Uh, the main topic is about bringing more developers into the administration would know about open source. We know how to use it and we know how to publish their own software. It's to uh, build kind of a, you know, public comments about software that we can share with other countries. There is a very interesting uh, initiative, which is called the Public Code Foundation. This is about producing data scheme to harmonize the way we present public code to other countries. 
So it's just a, a YAML uh, file with uh, some constants that you can use to declare, okay, this is public good. And we, as the Ministry of Finance or as the Ministry of uh, Education, we publish this code for anyone to reuse. And um, so we are very at an early stage at this, but the Public Code Foundation is something to follow. And also the work by the Italian team Digitale, which is using this uh, YAML uh, file to produce a, a new catalog of, of uh, code they release. This is not yet mutualization. We are at the stage of we are tr- just trying to harmonize the practices of uh, public agencies who publish code. And also the US with the uh, code.gov has yep. been an inspiration for this. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the uh, Fund the Code project. Yeah. So when I was um, really into augment maintenance, I was starting to feel the kind of a fatigue of uh, spending three hours and not getting paid. And I was unemployed at the time. Also, I was trying to build, to find new clients and all this was a mess. I identified, I was dreaming about uh, building a company for uh, crowdsourcing was really hot at the time, 2013. Uh, so everyone was talking about crowd uh, crowdfunding, sorry. Uh, crowdfunding was really hot at the time and everyone was building new company to crowdfund a social project or artistic project. And I said, okay, we need to uh, crowdfunding for uh, open source software, software. So I started with this idea and... Um, I found someone who started the same idea. So I, I was like, okay, I don't need to start another one. And we've been thinking of something that we could do together. And the first name of this project was Hug a Dev, like Hug a Developer. We said, we need to help developers ask for donations. Like the first step is for, to, to let them go out of the basement and say, this is what I do. This is... And without this step, you, you're always going to have a problem. So Huggedev was not a good name. And we started with another bad name, which was Hackadon, like, like a hackathon, but with donations, which was Hackadon. And now we stabilize with the name Found the, uh, Found the Code, which is more straightforward. The uh, idea- I'm, a, I'm a fan of the name, by the way. I run a company called Code Fund. So okay. yeah, I very much like the name. That's a very, okay. That's a very good one. I'm very debtful to Xavier Daman from Open Collective and a former uh, CEO of uh, Storyfy. And he told us about the Storyfy story saying, well, without a good name, you go nowhere. So have a good name. Let's start with this. Hackadon is horrible. So Founder Code is just about this. Another problem that I identify is that when I received donations from, you know, Orgmo supporters, it was always the same people and it was always individuals. And I felt, come on. I mean, I'm sure there are Googlers among the users. Maybe Google could just send me, you know, 20 bucks or whatever. Why just the individuals? And I knew that bureaucracy would prevent them from asking to the hierarchy and, and, and stuff like that. So, so the very first idea was that we want a live event. We want developers to talk with users and with people who don't know about free software. And then we don't want the audience to spend a penny. It must be free uh, evenings. And 
so the people who are going to give the money are sponsors and sponsors are going to be companies. So with these three pillars we started, we thought, okay, we're going to see if we find companies to help us. And we found them. They were very glad to give uh, 500 euros or 1,000. We don't go uh, beyond because we just need uh, 5,000 uh, euros per night. So they give 500 or 1,000. And there is no gold or silver sponsor or whatever. It's just you are a sponsor. You like free software and you want to help uh, maintainers maintain free software. And then when we have the money, we call for participation for uh, software maintainers or even just contributors. They spend 10 minutes explaining the audience what they do and why their software needs some funding and, or just some symbolic funding because we pick up 10 projects and we spend three hours explaining about these 10 projects. We make a video capture. So uh, the funders uh, go out and they have something to share on the internet, on Twitter. They have 10 minutes of presentation. And over the years, the presentation has uh, have been really, uh, uh, you know, the quality has been better and better. And then we have the, the audience voting for the software they want to support and giving the money of the sponsors. And that's it. So it worked. For the last three years, we had uh, we had one uh, funder code per year. And um, we are changing the model for next year. We don't want to the organizers to be always me and, and the two other friends. So we're going to start an open collective uh, account where we're going to centralize the funding and we're going to fund organizers uh, for other funder code evenings. So we're going to try to contact new organizations that wants to organize Funder Code Nights. And then we're going to centralize the money on this open collective account, uh, sponsoring others, uh, other events. And we are starting this uh, in September. And uh, we have already two or three organizations who want to uh, start. And giving them you know, just 1,000 and 2,000 euros make them confident that, that they just have to deal with uh, finding project and finding uh, the hundred people for for the audience. That's fantastic. Absolutely great. I love it. How do people get involved in this? So, for example, you know, CodeFund is a is a, an ethical advertising platform that targets developers. I mean, is that mm-hmm. something that we could do to help, where we could spread the message for for these efforts? Yeah, you're already spreading the message by having me right I, now. I and suppose the, we are. Look at that. <laughs> no, no, it's very nice. Yeah, when we have this open collective account, then anyone will be welcome to make donations for the ongoing funding that we need. And then we're going to be very transparent about where are the next Fund the God nights or evenings. We're going to be very experimental at first, like having maybe three uh, Fund the God events for the next year. And if it works, if we are able to really provide good guidance to uh, future organizers, and um, that we, we are gonna, going to open it to anyone. There is no trademark. We don't want to control any trademark. So tomorrow anyone can start a Fundercode uh, event. But what we find is that uh, organizers need to have a little uh, boost at the start, like a financial boost, because finding the sponsors is not easy. So we capitalized with good relations with the sponsors for the last three years, and they are okay funding other events in other cities and other countries. 
And if you are in a free software or not even a free software, but some, you know, tech guys and willing to bring focus on, on free software and on donation, just uh, get in touch with us, uh, send an email and uh, we're going to see how we can help you organize this, this event. What email address should they send a request to? Yeah, contact at fondecode.org. So you mentioned that it was easy to find sponsors to give 500, 1,000. How did you do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was not alone. There is this guy, Louis-David Benoyer, a very nice and um, very efficient guy when it comes to finding the right people to support us. So just three or four contacts uh, were enough to uh, bootstrap first events. And also, uh, he was the editor of a book that we published in 2013, which is called Open Models, O-P-E-N and Models, M-O-D-E-L-S.com. Not sure if it's on, still online. No, it's not this one. Or maybe .fr. Yeah, .fr. Yeah, openmodels.fr. Yeah. So the book was about explaining about the economy of uh, not just open source, but anything open. It was to reach, you know, uh, CEO, CTO, citizens, anyone. And through the selling of the uh, paperback copies of the book, then we were able to finance the next funder good. So it was kind of a, you know, recursive bootstrapping of, of the event and the book financing the event. So I'm, I'm not doing the commercial part, like the, the, the marketing and, and the, the outreach for new sponsors uh, is dealt with by uh, Louis David. It's fantastic. And we also have um, Mehdi Mejawi. He was a sponsor for the last uh, Fond de Code last year. And um, I think uh, in the next coming month, there's going to be a lot of um, help to let us, uh, you know, get in touch with the right people and new sponsors or maybe even new countries to organize uh, events because he's also based in, in California and he has a lot of contacts with the uh, tech uh, companies there. So we surely will uh, count on him to, to help us uh, spread the word. Just for, so the listeners know, we um, in a previous podcast, we recorded an interview with, with it was fascinating. Yeah, so one of the things that you talked about that I really like is the idea of asking for money outside of the maintainers, outside of the contributors. Yeah. To me, that that's such a strong message that I think needs to be said. That's why I started Code Fund back in the day. That's why this whole idea that we need to sustain each other financially kind of feels like we're all taking a dollar out of our wallets and passing it to the person to your right. Mm. And that's not a sustainable model. I don't believe so. I applaud you for what you're doing and, and exposing uh, visibility to these issues. And, and also, you're actually doing something about it. You're, you're actually getting money and putting money in, in maintainers' pockets. And that's, you know, we, we all can talk about it all day long, but mm -hmm. it's those that do make the difference. Yeah, about money coming from outside the circle of, you know, people helping each other. Even that stage is important, like having, you know, open source users to help open source uh, developers would be a lot. <laughs> and then when I say users, I, I don't want to say just individual users, but companies. So if company using open source would help uh, developers, that would be uh, huge. And so GitHub sponsors 
started this program where they uh, match your your donation. So this is outside money. Like if you uh, give one thousand through GitHub sponsors, they give one thousand on top of this, at least for the first year, and at least from what I understood. So this is outside money, and this is good. And before that, we had Google uh, through the Google Summer of Code. This is outside money, uh, not only bringing money to uh, the open source, but bringing new contributors. We may have questions on whether uh, this is the right contributors and the right way to bring new contributors, but I think this is uh, posing very interesting questions. And also, we are at the very, very early years of all these questions. We have a lot of feedback from burnouts of maintainers and experimental uh, approaches. What I find really important to me, at least, is uh, to keep having fun. So <laughs> fun the code was a way to continue to have fun and to meet new people. For example, in the last, pro- in the last uh, event in March, we had uh, this uh, developer from uh, Material UI. So I was really surprised to see Material UI coming here and asking for you know small money. But uh, there are only three guys, I guess. And he made a great presentation. And I said, wow, I, I can see how you're used to be on stage and make presentation. <laughs> and because your uh, PDF is just perfect. So I said, well, no, this is my first time out. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if the guys from Material UI were using Thundercode to go out for the first time and meet the, the, the users and answer questions live, I mean, there are a lot of people that we can, you know, pull out from their basement, I guess. I'm a big Olivier fan myself. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> uh, Olivier is the primary maintainer of Material UI, and yeah, he's a fantastic person. Yeah, he was part of this uh, evening, and he's a fantastic person, but I, I thought he was really used to give presentations because it was really nice to the point, timely, and so on, and say, no, no, it's actually uh, one of the first times. Yeah. Hi, I'm Charles Maxwood. You've probably heard me on a lot of the shows on devchat.tv. The language that got me into programming and taught me to love it was Ruby. And eventually I got together with a bunch of my friends and we started the podcast Ruby Rogues. And that's how devchat.tv got its start. Ruby Rogues has been running since 2011 and has had conversations with a lot of people from the wider programming community that you've probably heard of, as well as very focused episodes with people from the Ruby community. If you're doing Ruby, if you love Ruby, if you're building tools in Ruby, then you should check out Ruby Rogues and you can find it at rubyrogues.com. All right. I think it's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up. So now it's time for picks, if that's okay with you two, unless you had any unopened questions that you really wanted to, to get out there. Uh, it's fine with, fine with me. Okay. So this is the part of the show where we just say three things that have been meaningful or interesting to us recently uh, or what we're thinking about. Uh, Eric, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. So this week I've been at the uh, OSCON conference, the open source uh, O'Reilly conference, and it was a wonderful experience. I've never been to it before. I've been to several conferences before, but this one was a little bit different. The excitement around open source sustainability was exciting. And I guess one of the picks that I'd like to choose from a group that I met, there's Software Freedom Conservancy. There's actually a whole bunch of organizations that are trying to help make sure that open source 
remains open source. But for all of the projects that I talk to and I kind of am aware of, these guys are the real deal. I heard a talk given by, and I, I, I can't remember his name. I feel terrible, but he gave this talk on open source sustainability, and he compared it to the movie This uh, uh, a Wonderful Life. <laughs> and so it was a fantastic presentation. Wonderful people there. We're in good company. And then uh, the other pick that I have is, um, well, you know, I guess I, I, I'll probably leave it that pick. I, I had another one picked earlier on, but I, uh, but I forgot it. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I have three picks because I chose some things. So one of them is Nadia Eggball's Tiny Letter, which is just a constant joy whenever I get it. She sends one pretty much around once a month with just what she's been reading and what's going on. And there's always some, some gem in there. Uh, another one was, I'm not sure if I've shared this before, but Chomsky's On Anarchism, which is a, a collection of essays by Chomsky on anarchism. And I mean classical anarchism, not as in let's all destroy everything and be chaos, but rather classical libertarianism. So how do we live in a world where people are funded by their own ideals without being hampered and they're free to be able to create and explore and be hobbyists in code? This really actually was an interesting quote for me to read uh, from a software developer perspective. I'm not about to move to New Hampshire, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and then another pick would just be uh, because Dr. DeBastion has reminded me, and I was thinking about it yesterday, uh, Shakespeare and Co. If you're ever in Paris, it's my favorite bookstore in Paris. It's right across from Notre Dame, and it's just a really lovely place to go and chill out and sit out front and learn Lebanese Arabic with a bottle of wine and some cigarettes. I speak from experience. So that's my third pick. Bastion, do you have anything you want to share? Yeah, it's funny because I was uh, trying to think about things uh, to say. And first one would be, I'm glad to give to closureistogether.org. Uh, I think it's very original, uh, steady way to support the closure uh, language and closure script ecosystem, which is very new, like I mean, 10 years ago very active, very promising, and a lot of uh, questions on how, whether we should have a, a web framework and stuff like that. So I encourage uh, people to go and to see how it works. Even if you don't use Clojure, see how Clojureist uh, together works and see how, if you can use the same approach for your own ecosystem and your own uh, language. This is also for me the opportunity to say that I also very much appreciate Rich Heike approach to this debate about um, funding open source and what is open source and what is the relation with uh, proprietary software. There's been a lot of debate within the Clojure community. I don't dwell uh, into it that much, but he's very clear on what are the goals for each project and what are the way to make better contributions. And this is really interesting, and I really appreciate his way of uh, dealing with the debate. The second thing is that last year I discovered Write the Docs. Speaking about maintenance, uh, I think documentation is key, and uh, Write the Docs is uh, an ongoing international effort to bring attention to documentation. So we started the Write the Doc uh, meetup in Paris recently, and it was really nice. So. If you don't know Docs, go there and, and be part of these efforts and go on uh, Meetup to find where people talk about documentation. I'm, I'm passionate about documentation. Maybe that's why I went to Emacs and, and Augment. Uh, and my last pick, uh, 
it's about Shakespeare. <laughs> I recently uh, read a book by Roger Chartier. He's a French uh, uh, historian about literature. And uh, it's a book about Cardenio. And Cardenio is a figure in uh, Don Quixote uh, novels, in the Cervantes uh, novels Don Quixote. And Cardenio was a play by Shakespeare that we lost. <laughs> so the whole story about this lost play by Shakespeare and not just Shakespeare, another one too, Fletcher, is just fascinating. So if there are Shakespeare uh, lovers around here or people, you know, living at Shakespeare and Co, because I know people live in this uh, library, just check about Cardenio and dive into it. it looks, uh, it's really fascinating. I'm going to have to read that. I've been in two Shakespeare sure. plays this year. I love Shakespeare. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Cardenio has been the last play, and, and someone revived it uh, in 1727, pretending that he found the uh, manuscript. And that <laughs> this was the manuscript of the Cardenio play, and there is a lot of debate around this uh, since then. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. All right, thank you so much for for being. Thank you for having me, and um, hope to see you around. Maybe get to a code fun event and take care. Sure, and looking forward questions and discussions uh, online afterwards. All right. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.